Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. Well, all right. Uh, I am super excited about uh, this opportunity that we have this morning. We have been uh, in a series in our church. We're calling, uh, we call the series now for the last three weeks, four weeks, uh, True For You But Not For Me. And what we're doing uh, in this series is we're exploring the idea of truth and we're exploring the idea of Holy Scripture and how it leads us to truth. Uh, Over the last three weeks, we have looked at a theme verse uh, that I'm going to ask our team to put on the screen, and for those of you that are streaming from wherever you are, and we're going to read this uh, verse together uh, one last time, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Let's read it. Ready? Go. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And uh, over the last three weeks, what we've invited uh, our church family to do is to submit your questions about uh, the Bible, about truth, about scripture. And uh, we were, uh, ha- are going to form a panel and then talk about that. And I'm delighted to introduce uh, you to two of my friends. Uh, first of all, many of you know Dr. Vic Copan. Uh, he is Kathy's husband. That's probably how he's best known in our church. <laughs> And I wanted to acknowledge that. But beyond that, um, Vic is actually a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University. And uh, he is a theologian and particularly an expert in the New Testament. And then we have uh, joining him today is Dr. Nathan Maxwell. Both uh, he and his wife, Kathy, uh, are uh, uh, professors at Palm Beach Atlantic University also uh, in the ministry department. They're also connected and a part of our fellowship. And Dr. Maxwell is actually an expert and a theologian in the Old Testament. And so would you put your hands together wherever you are and welcome Nathan and welcome Vic uh, to our stage this morning. Praise God. And I'm so excited to have them with us. Uh, Those of you who may not know, um, Vic just actually uh, underwent a little bit of a heart procedure this past week. And uh, everything has turned out absolutely great. Lots of uh, uh, folks are praying for him, and it turned out all right. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, I I told him before. So if I say anything weird, it's the meds. It's the meds. We can blame it on the the umbrella of mercy. I I told Vic, I said, you better come out of that all right. I don't want to have to do this and fill in your part of the role. So... Uh, I'm excited about that. But uh, over the last three weeks, uh, we've had uh, our church family has been submitting questions. And uh, one of the things that uh, we strive to do in a very particular way two or three times a year is we lean into this phrase that uh, I just sort of shared uh, several years ago. I said, we're going we're gonna, to, in this particular series, we're going to learn to love God with our minds. And so we, in, in those series particularly, we push the edges a little bit further. We kind of draw the curtain back and we push uh, into some of these things. And so uh, we have uh, some questions that we want to ask. Now, here's the thing I want to remind you all too. You, for those of you that's streaming now or for those of you who want to know, we're answering a different set of questions at 10.30 than we did at 9. Because there were enough questions that came in. We said, we're going to add to this to give uh, these guys who are coming over, given of their time, 
a little bit more of an opportunity to kind of ask or answer more questions. So uh, this morning, though, I'm going to begin in this service, and Nathan, I'm going to go to you, and I want to ask this question. Um, you know, we, we talk about the Bible. I have people tell me all the time, you know, so I come to Community of Hope. I'm learning what it means to follow Christ. Some say even I haven't given my life to Christ yet. I'm just kind of learning. And I'll notice you open a book, you read from a book, you teach or preach from a book. So about the book, like, you know, and so this is a question that came in. Who decided which books are made into the Bible? Sometimes we even hear the phrase, the canon of Holy Scripture. Help us understand that. Okay, good. Uh, that's a really uh, good question. It's okay. a, a great place to start. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, um, Brandon uh, preached on the subject of uh, inspiration. He, very briefly, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The homily. Okay. And um, one of the things in there um, was uh, the idea of inspiration as being, uh, he didn't use the word plenary inspiration, but he used the idea that God oversees yeah. Um, doesn't sort of dictate what the authors are writing, but oversees that whole process. Yeah. And um, the first thing I would point out is to to sort of extend that idea of inspiration, the oversight, the working of the Holy Spirit to the process of canonization, okay. which is just deciding the standard or the rule, which books are included okay. and which books are, are not. Um the other thing I would mention is that um, it's a really big subject, so we could, you know, we could spend a few Sundays on it, and so yeah. there's a lot to to leave out. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but there are moments, all uh, kind of across Christian history, where people are talking about canon, which books are included and okay. which books are not. In some places, you might not expect to see it. Um, Jesus, for example, in Luke, will make a reference to the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and yep. the Psalms. And so we know from that that by the time of Jesus, the three basic sections of the Old Testament seem to already be intact, the Torah, Nevim, Ketavim, the yep. Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And so um, you can kind of go on through history. You can look at the Council of Jamnia, which is a bit of a misnomer. It's not really a council, but it's a group of rabbis discussing the canon of the Old Testament, books that are in and okay. books that aren't. And you can keep going forward. Eusebius in the 4th century We'll talk about the, the books um, in the New Testament. A really big moment is Athanasius in 367. Yeah. He writes a, a kind of traditional letter and says, these, these books are in for the, um, for the New Testament. And that goes forward longer than sometimes we think. Um, as far um, as late as 1546, the Council of Trent, when the Catholic Church says, here's the, here's the Christian canon. Um, but the really important thing to communicate is that those moments in history are not so much when Scripture is canonized, but really they're kind of formal acknowledgments of a status that already exists. The church had already accepted, for the most part, these books in the Bible as uh, canonical, um, as bearing witness to the, the Christian confession of faith. And they're just acknowledging that. It's just that Athanasius... He's kind of a big deal in 367, yeah. and he's able to sort of leave a mark on the historical record. Wow. But who actually decides to answer the question directly? It's really communities of faith, just, just like this, um, filled with lives who practice Christian faith for their entire lives, and that goes on for generation after generation. And that is really the, the sort of powerful vetting and testimony 
that creates this kind of immutable record so that we can very confidently say these 66 books bear true witness to what the Christian confession is all about and others do not. Wow, super helpful. And so we hear the word uh, canon. Canon means rule. Mm-hmm. Canon means rule. Um, Vic, so following up there, one of the things that I, I think, uh, uh, this was not a direct question, but um, questions surrounding this that uh, our body asked over these weeks. Uh, when we think about, say, what, what Nathan just shared, we know that the Bible's been copied, it's been translated over and over and over. How do we trust that the Bible that we're reading is the contains the actual words that we should know and understand in its original form. How, help us with that. Sure, I'd love to. Um, I think it's important to to realize when you the average person on the, on the street, if you ask them that, they have this notion that the the book, the Bible that we have in our hands, was a copy of a copy of a copy, kind of like the telephone game person whispers something in the ear of one person, yeah. ten, ten persons later, out comes something totally different. Okay? Is that how it happened? Um, I don't think so. Um, let's, let me give an example. Um, we'll talk about the Old Testament, but let me give an example of how careful the Jewish people were um, with their sacred scriptures. Um, in 1947, um, all, um, on the sea, on the shore of the Dead Sea, there were some caves, and um, they discovered thousands of manuscripts uh, that a religious community called Qumran had um, preserved there, going back to the time of Jesus and before. Now, among these thousands of uh, manuscripts were a number of complete books of the Bible. I believe all of them except for Esther were, were, were located there. Among them was the, an entire scroll of Isaiah, um, that, which you can actually see on display in Jerusalem. Um, up until that time, uh, the oldest copy that we had of the, uh, of, of the book of Isaiah was from 980 AD, which was over a thousand years difference. Mm-hmm. And when scholars examined that copy with the, the scroll from the Dead Sea, they discovered word for word it was 95% identical. And the five other percent were kind of slips of the pen and spelling differences. Wow. Okay? Um, and that same uh, thing can be uh, repeated for the other uh, scriptures that were found there. Um, Again, just documenting how careful um, the Jewish people were. Now, for the New Testament, um, I have a chart that I'd like to show. Yeah, let's show that. Is that that. possible to show at this point? There it is. Beautiful. So in the left column, you see uh, some major Greek authors um, from the ancient world um, and when they lived. And then at the bottom, you see the New Testament and when approximately it could have been written between 33 AD and 95. 33 AD is a little bit tight, um, but uh, it, it gets the point across. Then in the next column, it tells you the time span from when the first copy of that book was discovered. And you notice uh, with those other uh, writings, 
the long time span, and then you compare with the New Testament, you get a time span of 100, 150 years, probably less than 100 years. Now, uh, the, the material that was used for uh, writing back then was called papyri. We get our word paper from that. And uh, books were, off, were normally in circulation about 150 years. And what scholars think is that um, there's an overlap between the first copies and the actual writings. So some scholars suggest that they were actually copying from the original. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, and, um, and one of the things that uh, in the last column, you'll see how many manuscripts the other uh, authors had, but notice how many uh, copies of the New Testament we have. Mm-hmm. They could be fragments, they could be entire books, but we have over 5,000 copies. Now, the more copies you have of something, the more you can compare, and there's a whole mm-hmm. science um, behind this called textual criticism, and using the methods of textual criticism, these scholars have, have uh, discerned uh, the, the text with the, uh, of the New Testament with a 99% Accuracy. Wow. Okay? And what these scholars have done is they've actually published a Greek New Testament. Um, you see it here. Um, I use it uh, in, my, in my devotions. Um, and, uh, and the important thing for that is when it comes to the translation of new of translations today, like the NIV translation that we use, what these scholars do is they take this book, this Greek New Testament, and they translate directly from that. So the NIV you have doesn't go through generations of generations of translations. It's copied directly from this. And it's similar to uh, the Old Testament. Um, and I think that's, that's really, um, a lot of people don't know that, but it, yeah. that's, that's the state of the... And it's <laughs> even worth pointing out that the... The 5,000 copies is pretty conservative. If you throw in quotes from, you know, early theologians and pastors, that number presses up significantly higher. Wow. It goes wow. into the millions of quotations from other sources. Here's what I want you to notice. I think it's very significant about this because a lot of times you will be asked questions by maybe your, your friends or family that are navigating uh, issues of faith. Sometimes this is a barrier. And the presumption out there is that, you know, we have our book. Everybody has a book. This is our book. And, and, and you know, our book is sort of, it's, it's siloed around us. It's not connected to the greater world. One of the things that's very interesting to me when I studied this long time ago is you'll notice, notice how quickly uh, that the New Testament came into being between authorship and available first copy. It's in almost in that first century there. So it's close to the eyewitness accounts. Remember, we often say at Community of Hope that the idea of Christianity isn't just founded around a person. It's founded around an event. And the event is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you'll notice that. And then secondly, look at the like 5,700 copies. Look at the difference of copies when you hear people talk about Homer's Iliad or something like that. So this is significant, not just within the scope of the Christian faith, but in in its rightful place in history in general is a super important 
thing. One of the things that I think about that, that you guys are driving at, maybe Nathan, I'll come back to you. Uh, here's a question. Why then are there so many different translations of the Bible? Even in English, we have NIV, NLT, ESV, NSV, KJV, NASV. I know for all of our young, younger communicators, I require that we preach from the NIV 2011 version. That's just my, my, my uh, idea around that. Help us understand why is there so much of that? So um, that's a great question. It okay. ends up being a, a kind of a, a large question. So I'll just kind of rapid fire kind of name like a challenge, a principle, strategy, and kind awesome. of give an example. We'll just kind of run through it really, really quick. Um, the, the challenge is there is no one-to-one correspondence between any two languages. So the way that you say it in Spanish is different than the way you habla inglés, right? It's, there's no one-to-one correspondence. And so what that means is that all translation at some level is interpretation. All translation is interpretation. That's our, that's our challenge. And so um, what you can do is try to decide how much interpretation is involved on behalf of the translator. Hmm. So, for example, um, you could say we want to minimize the translator's role in interpreting as much as possible to where they translate word for word what the text says. Um, a formal correspondence to the original language. An an extreme example might be like an interlinear, um, which, you know, lines up the original Hebrew or Greek and then underneath puts a word-for-word translation. Um, The benefit is high fidelity. It's it's close, as close to the text as possible, minimizes the translator's interpretation, interpretive role, but they're really hard to read. They're not particularly accessible. I don't know about you, but I, I don't pull yep. down an interlinear for my devotional, nope. although Vic reads his uh, Greek New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> so you can off. go to the, I know, um, always showing off. You can go to the other extreme and say, okay, well, let's let the translator do the work of interpretation. An extreme example of that might be um, like the message, where the instead of going word for word, you're, you're kind of going thought for thought. Yeah. The, the functional equivalent in whatever... Uh, language you're trying to translate into. Wow. Um, and then you might not be surprised that, you know, translations like the NIV or the NRSV or the ESV, they're kind of in the neighborhood of trying to kind of head for the middle. So there's so many translations because you have to sort of choose, do I want um, to make something accessible or make something um, have the highest possible fidelity to the original language? So is that kind of like a like a uh, a tension between yeah, those two exactly. ideas, it's a fidelity versus understandability, yeah. kind of. Exactly. So, but by way of example, really quick, if you if you got a Bible, you can flip over to Amos Amos four six, um, and it's the Old a, Testament. It's the Old Testament. Yeah, there's a. It's a Amos is pr- pronouncing a judgment from the Lord because that's kind of what Amos does, um, and he he uses this expression, "I will give you cleanness of a pair of teeth." Literally, word for word, that's what it says. I'm going to give you cleanness for a pair of teeth. And in English, that doesn't make any sense. Like, are, are we, is the judgment, we all have to go to the dentist every day? <laughs> and so um, some translations will say, I will give you cleanness of teeth. But um, at the other end, to go for a more thought for thought, the translator might say, okay, body parts are usually given in pairs in Hebrew. You, you got a pair of eyes, that's your eyes, and a pair of teeth means all of your teeth. Hopefully they had more than two. Um, and that cleanness means that they weren't eating. So it's a, it's a, 
it's a uh, an idiom for famine. Interesting. And so some translations will say, "I'll give you empty stomachs," or "I will send famine." Uh, I will send famine. And so um, I think wow. it's a good thing to have lots of translations because it improves the resolution um, of our uh, the way that we are able to see the text in our own language. So it's actually wow. a benefit. Man, that's super helpful. And I have to say, it's, I know part of the challenge in a moment like this, right, is we are, we are taking two men who have really given their lives to the study of this. They teach these things in semesters or longer, and we're giving you about a minute and a half to kind of hit the, hev- the heavy questions. Um, one of the things that drives, again, what you're saying, just kind of coming off of one another, uh, when we look at the authority and the reliability of Scripture, I want to move into that. Uh, Vic, one of the questions we had was, uh, if the information in the Gospels about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection really happened, you would expect historical writings besides the Bible to mention them. Is Jesus ever mentioned outside of the, the Bible? That's a, that's a very good question, and I'm looking for my notes here. Okay. <clears throat> is that in the second service? Or is it first second service, service okay. yeah. Sorry about that. That's it. That we're going to try to. I did go and delete a can. few things. Is Thank that? Thank you very much. <laughs> there you are. I love you too. Um, gotcha. Um, Great. So it's interesting that that you actually find um, quite a bit of information, quite a bit of important information. Um, we have a number of early references to Jesus outside of the New Testament by non-Christians. I'll just mention three of them. Um, First of all, the Roman historian Tacitus, he's writing in about the year 55 AD, and um, he's writing from Rome, and um, he talks about that there was this person by the name of Christ who was uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was the emperor, and that's exactly what the New Testament says. He goes on to say that this disease, that's what he calls Christianity, um, w- wow. was spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire and reached even Rome itself. Now, you'd have um, Israel is many, many hundreds of miles in an ocean away from Rome. So within 20 years, the wow. gospel and Christians were multiplying like rabbits, okay? Uh, They were all over the place, which is pretty amazing. Maybe I shouldn't have used that uh, analogy. We'll we'll Um, call that the meds. We'll just say that's... that's, And then looking at Jewish writings, um, in in the Talmud, um, it refers to Jesus as a magician, which is what you would expect from a non-believing Jew to say about Jesus' miracles. And then it goes on to, tall, to, to, to call Jesus an illegitimate child. It actually uses a really bad word um, uh, for that. Uh, but again, that's what you would expect for, from a non-believing Jew when uh, Christians began talking about the virgin birth. Okay? Wow. And then uh, you have the historian Josephus yeah. who... Um, who records a number of times uh, things that connect with the New Testament. He does talk about Jesus. He calls him the supposed Messiah. And he talks about how some people even 
thought he was raised from the dead. In another place, he talks about uh, the death of John the Baptist, wow. and then he also talks about uh, the, the, uh, the killing of James, uh, the brother of Jesus, and it uses the, the, that phrase, that expression, the brother of Jesus. doesn't explain that anymore, but if you just drop a name like that, you know that that person had to be known in the ancient world. Okay? Otherwise, you'd give more definition to that. Okay? Um, there, there are um, a, a number of other examples I could go uh, and talk about, but those are, are three helpful ones. Isn't that interesting? Because, again, uh, I think one of the arguments that I think sometimes is relevant within the Christian experience is this perceived isolation that what we believe has been created, you know, we've created it. it, it doesn't have its proper role or proper place within history at large, and, and that's actually untrue. Right. We see that in, in a broader way. Um, some of the questions that we had were just sort of questions of tension, maybe the, the, the apparency of like, are, we, are there contradictions in the Bible? What do we do with contradictions? Um, Nathan, one question we had is, you know, Genesis. Do we know who wrote Genesis? Because, you know, the, the idea of Genesis with Moses, but then at the end he's sort of writing about his death, which is problematic. So help us with that a little. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, that's a, a good question as well. I think um, this is one, one question where I would probably recommend a, a resource there's okay. a there's an outstanding uh, scholar. His name's Trimper Longman. I've got his poster on my wall in my office. Not really, um, but maybe I do. Um, but he's got a book called How to Read Genesis, and he okay. gives one of the the best summaries of this question. Okay. Um, that's the most temperate, okay. and that's what I really like about it. It's very even handed. It, it's become a kind of a controversial question. So, like, if you Google this, you know, who wrote Genesis, um, you'll find a a pretty hostile conversation, kind of on both sides, um, where folks are kind of villainizing uh, opponents. And so I don't know that the sort of the public conversation is really all that productive. Yeah. Um, you know, on in the strictest academic sense, uh, Genesis is technically an anonymous book. It doesn't, I wish that there was a, you know, a biographical jack, uh, jacket. Hi, my name's Moses. I like long walks through parted seas. And also I wrote the Torah. <laughs> But, um, you know, we just don't have that. Um, and so the Bible doesn't really stake out that claim for Moses. It's one of the earliest attributions that we have about the Bible. You even yep. have Jesus referring to the, yep. the Pentateuch, the Torah, as the, the law of Moses. It's probably more like a title at that point, but yeah. still. Yeah. Um, you, Moses is frequently depicted, not in Genesis, but throughout the Torah, as writing things down. You know, the Lord tells him to write these things down, and he writes those down. The, the book of Moses is read. Um, and so um, probably uh, the easiest way to think about it is that Moses is a principal contributor. If you think about Genesis in particular, Moses wasn't around for that. 
right? So that, that predates him right. a little bit, and he has to source that information yep. from somewhere. Right. So we can think about Moses inheriting information or sources, yep. and then there's um, evidence of editorial activity after the time of Moses all yep. the way down to the exilic period. So he's a principal. He inherited something, and the work continued um, after his life. I think that's probably the most even-handed way to think about that question in particular. But what I would say is that what's authoritative is not so much Moses's words, but the words that we find um, canonized in Genesis. And its authority doesn't come because Moses said it, but because, because God speaks it. Yeah. And so that's where that's the, the real authority for Genesis is rooted, good. is in its divine inspiration, I would say. Um, another question, Vic, I'll come over to you that uh, is sort of in this vein where, you know, these are just little problematic questions that some of the folks uh, in our congregation have lifted up. Um, if Jesus prayed to his father, is he actually praying to himself since the Trinity proclaims that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one? Good good luck. Um, I... I I, I like that. That's um, an interesting question. Uh, my daughter, she sends me uh, memes every once in a while. So does mine. And uh, a, a, a while ago, she sent me a, a meme of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, and he's looking up toward heaven, and, and he's saying, Hey, Dad, it's me, you. <laughs> So what is the relationship between um, the Father in, in heaven and Jesus, Jesus on earth? A um, lot of stuff we could say. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. But I, th- I think the best starting point to, to, to think about this is actually to begin with uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus is described as being equal, and, uh, being equal with God. Yeah. And then he, um, it, it describes how he leaves heaven and he emptied himself, becoming a man. Okay? So the key word there is emptied himself. What does that mean? And I think the best explanation for that is that uh, Jesus gave up the advantages that he had as God hmm. so that, um, as Paul said, he could be exactly like we were without any advantage. Um, So when Jesus was on earth, yes, he was fully God, but he chose not to access those divine powers. And it's interesting, in the the story of the temptation, remember Satan coming to him? Satan is actually tempting him to access those divine powers without going through God himself. And uh, Jesus doesn't do that, okay? And, and instead, you see Jesus all through the Gospels asking his Father to show his divine power through them. That's why all throughout the Gospel of John, you hear Jesus saying things like, I do nothing of my own. I only do what the Father tells wow. me. Okay? And then in John 12, it says, I only speak the things the Father says to me. Okay? And then a couple chapters later, uh, Jesus says, my words are not my own, but the Father gives them to me. It's as if he's waiting, it's as if he's got his ear 
always cocked a little bit higher to heaven, listening to what God is telling him to do. Okay? I think one of the best illustrations of that um, is actually the, 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 the show Undercover Boss. Okay? I saw Drew Brees um, once uh, in, on the show. He's the New Orleans quarterback, um, and he owns a restaurant. And in this show, he goes undercover, and he, he's just doing anything a, a person in the kitchen is doing. He's not accessing his power and authority. He's just leaving that aside and, and becoming a full human being. I think that's a helpful analogy um, of, of what Jesus is doing. So when Jesus is in the garden praying, he really is asking his father for insight and for help. Okay? Now, the challenge for us is to understand how the father and the son can be the same, but in different places. Okay? We're going to wrestle with that for a long time because our brain capacity, I don't think, can handle that. Okay? Um, when you, what you notice in the New Testament is it speaks of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all in the same way, talking about referring to them as God, yeah. but they're different. And the thing is, the New Testament writers are okay with that. Okay? And I think uh, I'm, I'm okay with that too. I don't have to go any further than that. Wow, super helpful here. Um... A broader question, if I were to zoom out, I, I, that I hear often, uh, I, it's, I get asked this question from time to time. One of the things that I've uh, taught our congregation to do over the years now, really almost two decades now, is to read God's Word for yourself. It's one of the reasons I have you guys here is because I know you do that. And um, to journal on it, to pick truth out and, and to understand all of that truth. Um, and so when I'm teaching that, I, I have a, uh, a rhythm of going through God's word, which will take us through the New Testament twice in a year, the Old Testament once. And oftentimes I'll tell people who are new to the experience, I'll say, Nathan, you won't like this. I'll say, set the Old Testament aside, start with the New Testament. But when these guys uh, that I journal with start to wade into the, the, the Old Testament, they'll often ask this question, they'll go, why is the Old Testament God so different from Jesus and the New Testament God? Can you help us maybe to get our arms and our hearts around that a little bit? Sure. Um, the, the first thing I would uh, do is just sort of acknowledge that, that it really is. Um, uh, I, get, I get within 20 feet of a classroom and a hand goes up and says, what's the deal with the Old Testament and the New Testament God? Um, and so I would want to... You know, acknowledge that that's a legitimate question for anyone who you know yep. starts pursuing scripture with any kind of seriousness. But I would also say that um, I have found myself in a similar place um, earlier in my faith journey, and over the years, the theological unity of the Testaments has actually become one of the most compelling things for me um, to continue to drive me back to scripture and for it to continue to be something that speaks to me in a living way. Um, I, I think about the opening, you know, the opening moment of Scripture, curtains go up, and you get this account of creation 
this uh, sovereign Elohim, this kind of powerful descriptor of yes. God who speaks creation into being and orders chaos. Yes. And then the story will sort of recapitulate back up and tell the story again, only it will use the personal name for God, this very intimate uh, personal name. Instead of speaking creation into being, God forms um, the man and the woman like a potter, you know, forming clay. God's very present and engaged. And um, those two different angles on uh, who God is, is the very first two ingredients. You get this transcendent, sovereign God and this present, relational God. And those two ingredients are the, the basic attributes that make all the rest of the story make sense. Mm. You have to have a God who is not the same thing as, as us, who's a, a sovereign over us. Yeah. You have to have a God who's capable, has the capacity to save and rescue us. Yeah. But at the same time, you have to have a God who actually wants to save us, who yeah. is present with us and engaged with us. And the rest of the Old Testament story just doesn't make any sense without those two basic ingredients. And then in the New Testament, the curtains go up and you get this pitch-perfect expression of mm. the whole Old Testament story. This transcendent, sovereign, but present God who's come to dwell among the people all the way through the story of the Old Testament, from the tabernacle to the temple, that idea of God's redeeming presence. You find this pitch-perfect expression um, through multiple lenses. We get four Gospels that tell kind of different stories, give us different angles, on a God who doesn't just come to dwell among the people, but God who becomes a person among the people. And that becomes this, um, has this redeeming effect to reconcile the world back to God. And it just, it's, uh, it's so compelling and really stunning to me that unity, that these first yeah. moments have this kind of exact same portrait of who God is and accomplishes it in the same way. Yeah. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. The more I get into Scripture, the more I see the same God across the Testaments, a God who's passionate uh, in pursuing to recover what's lost. Yeah, super helpful. Um, you know, I was thinking as we as we kind of wrap up. Um, I know that in my own journey, and I try to share this candidly with our congregation, um, I grew up in a family that, you know, we went to church, it was our thing. I didn't always understand. And uh, when I was younger in my faith, um, I would push against sometimes the Bible, and I would look for contradictions. and, And really what was underneath it is, for me, I think is if I could find a loophole or a contradiction, I wouldn't have to begin to line my life up around the truth that is within it. And when I became a follower of Jesus, um, that has sort of become a rhythm, you know, to, to measure my own life against the truth of Scripture. Because, you know, what we've been saying is when you walk out these doors, there's a million truths out there. There's a million upper ways that we can orient our lives. And we're wanting to say here at Community of Hope with a high view of scripture, this is the way to orient our lives. And uh, I know that when I went to seminary, I, uh, I was impacted by men and by women who 
it wasn't just an enterprise. It was personal. And one of the reasons I love you guys and I love your heart and I'm so honored that you're in our fellowship is because I know that's true of you. So as we close out today, I guess I want to say, and Vic, I'll start with you and then let Nathan finish up. I mean, why should we read the Bible? Why do you read the Bible? Why is this important? Well, um, oh. I, it's a great question. Um, I read the Bible every day. Um, and let me just tell you my practice and, and then tell you why, um, I, uh, why I read it. Uh, every morning, uh, Kathy and I uh, get up between 5.30 and 6. Uh, Kathy usually wakes up earlier than I. Um, I'm the lazy one. And uh, we, make a, we make coffee together, and then each of us read the same passage. We, we try to read through the entire Bible um, on a regular basis. And um, we each sit at our own place um, and uh, read and reflect on what we're learning um, we use the soap method uh, that, that the Commune of Hope uses. And then we go for a walk, 40-minute walk together, and we talk about what, what we've discovered and what, God's, uh, what, what God is put, putting his finger on in, our, in the text in our lives. Great. And then we pray that into our, uh, into our own lives, and we pray for our, ourselves and kids. And um, I can't tell you how much, um, many insights I've gotten, but also areas where um, I have seen, I've had some ideas that maybe in, in ways of doing things that weren't in alignment with Scripture, and that's kind of reoriented my thinking. Great. And so it just kind of gives me an orientation in life of, of how to live, how to live well, and to avoid those pitfalls that, um, that a lot of people have. Yeah? Fantastic. Um, and it, it's a three-for-one deal. It's like um, I'm going uh, on a date with God and with my wife, and I'm getting exercise to boot. <laughs> Amen to that, Nathan. Um, so I, I guess I would say my regular routine is pretty weird, and I don't know if I would recommend it. It took me a, a lot of years to, to sort of find it. I, I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation straight through every biological year. So like I, on my birthday, Genesis one, and then, you know, before my next birthday rolls around, I have the same version, uh, as a a book, an ebook, and then I have the audible version. So in some format, it's kind of always in the background. I don't think that that really works for a lot of people. And so like a reading plan is probably, what I usually recommend to folks who ask. Someone asked me after the last service, and that's what I said. I didn't tell them, read the Bible straight through. That can be pretty challenging. Um, But for me, um, the difference that it's made is uh, really everything. um, In Scripture, um, I find that it imagines a world, creates a framework in which my own life makes sense, that I understand my own nature and value and purpose, and then I understand the nature and value and purpose of the people around me and see them in the way that that God sees them and uh, see them reflecting the image of God. And that governs uh, everything, Uh, the convictions that drive what I do and the choices that I make. Um, And um, it aligns the relationships that I have um, in ways that uh, bring, bring, bring joy and um, help me see, um, 
help me make sense of the tragedies and the failures as my life as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a framework in which my life makes sense. I, my own story gets read into the story of the divine drama. Um, uh, Brandon, um, a few weeks ago in his, what, what are we calling it? B- bumper sticker devotional or the, yeah. the sermonette or <laughs> whatever you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he, um, he, he said that scripture, or the Bible reads us. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the language that I yeah. would, that I would echo for me. Yeah. One of the things I love about Brian is, uh, you know, I've seen him since he was little and he's been doing that a long time. And, you know, he's reading the word and it lets it read him. And that's what we commend to everybody here. You have a decision to make around this. And this is why this is so important. God has made it possible for us to know him and to love him. He's revealed himself in his word. Could you thank our friends, Vic and Nathan? Super good.